We've been looking at uh, the stories of Genesis, the stories in Genesis of the patriarchal family. We've been looking at the stories that Jesus taught in his parables. And we've been looking at these stories um, in order to gain godly wisdom, wisdom for our life. And in thinking about that connection between stories and wisdom, I thought about a quote that I came across a while ago. And uh, it's it's from a philosopher who said, before you can answer the question, how shall I live? What should I do? You first have to answer the question, what story am I part of? How do I fit in, in other words, to the larger picture of the goal and the direction of life? Before I can answer the question, what shall I do? I need to know what story I'm part of. And of course, we know that there are various stories told in our culture about the meaning and purpose and goal of life. You know, you have the secular story, which is um, we are random products of time and chance and matter. We only have this one life, so give it your best shot. Try to make the most of it. The ancient saying is eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And today we might say make a lot of money. Have a lot of experiences and uh, try to leave the world a little bit better place before you leave. That's the secular story. If you live according to that story, you're going to act in a certain way and have certain values. But the Christian story, of course, is different. We believe we're part of an eternal story. Uh, We serve and worship an eternal God. And this eternal God has called us into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. He's made a way for us to have that eternal relationship. And he's made us in his image. To know him and to love him and to glorify him now in this life, which is very short and then forever for all of eternity. So we're part of an eternal story and we need to remind ourselves of that every once in a while to kind of recalibrate to adjust to the reality because that's not the story that the culture teaches or preaches. I think our readings this morning will help us to do that, help us to think about living in light of eternity, living with eternity in mind. And so I want to look at these readings with that theme, living life with eternity in mind. And the first point comes from our reading in Genesis. And that is, you know, we worship a God who wants to dwell with his people now and forever. God makes his dwelling with. His people, he does that because he's a God of love and a God of grace. We see that in the life of Jacob, who represents the people of God. Jacob represents Israel in these stories, and he has this dramatic dream. This famous dream, Um, and it's a turning point in his life. He has this dream of a stairway to heaven. And uh, maybe some of you have had some dramatic dreams in your life where you have sensed God speaking to you through a dream. I believe God still does that today. We have to check it based on Scripture. We have to evaluate it based on Scripture. But I believe that God still speaks to people Sometimes, occasionally through dreams. And I've heard some of your stories and I know some of you 
have had experiences like this. But Jacob's dream in this dream, um, the veil is pulled back, so to speak, between the natural and the supernatural world. He sees angels ascending and descending upon this ladder, this interchange between heaven and earth and these angelic beings going up and down this ladder. And the most important part of the vision, though, is that Jacob sees the Lord himself. Verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it, this ladder. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. And that's the most important part, because Jacob needs to know that God is with him. And this God makes promises to Jacob. He makes promises about land. I will give you this land and you will have offspring that will bless all the nations of the world. And I will be with you. The promise of his presence now, Jacob, I will be with you. And then the promise of his presence in the future. And I will I am with you now and I will be with you. Until these promises come true. So this experience of God's presence And the promise of God's presence is really the turning point in Jacob's life. Jacob has been on the run at this point. He's he's kind of like a fugitive on the run, trying to get away from his brother Esau. Esau's had enough of Jacob's trickery. And Esau says, I'm going to kill him. And so Jacob is running in fear and running for his life away from his brother. But this transforms him, this experience of God's presence, God's dwelling with him. And Bruce Walkie, I like what Bruce Walkie says that, uh, about this transformation in commenting on this passage of Scripture. Listen to what Walkie says. He says, a man running from God runs into God. A man afraid of his brother now fears God. A rock becomes a temple. Night turns into morning. The Canaanite city, Luz, that's a Canaanite name, becomes Bethel, which becomes a place of worship for the people of Israel. And when the dream is fulfilled, Jacob, the deceiver, becomes Israel, the man who strives with God and prevails. That's what Israel means, the one who prevails or strives with God and with others. So God's dwelling, his presence has transformed Jacob's life. And that's the same in our life. I think we can look as Christians, we can look back at our life and 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 even now and say what makes the difference is the presence of God with us to know he's with us, to know he's with us. When we read scripture, we sense his presence. When we hear a sermon, hopefully we sense God speaking to us when we come to the sacraments, when we sing together, we Encounter the presence of God in corporate worship, in our individual devotional life. And then sometimes we have these dramatic Bethel-like experiences. Some people have these experiences where the overwhelming presence of God is so real. It's life-changing. The uh, eternal invades the temporal and it changes our lives. And so that's what's happened with Jacob here. But here's the point that I want to make as it relates to our overarching theme of living with eternity in mind. And that is what we see here in the story of Jacob and over and over again in the Bible is that we worship a God who wants to dwell with his people, who wants to reveal his presence. He wants to dwell with his people now and for eternity. 
This is a God who graciously comes to us. Even the rascally Jacobs of the world, he comes to us and offers his presence. He doesn't hold himself apart, aloof. He's not impersonal. He's not the impersonal force. He's a personal God who draws us into a personal relationship with him. So we don't have to go through this journey, this life alone. And Jacob realizes it now, even though he's afraid, even though he's on the run, run, he knows I'm not alone. God is with me. And we're on a journey, brothers and sisters. We're on a journey to the eternal dwelling place of God. That's what the end of the book tells us. This is a foreshadowing of the ultimate temple, the ultimate place of God's presence, which is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is what God reveals to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21 says that the dwelling place of God will be with man. That's the ultimate destination. And that needs to be our orientation. That needs to be our course heading as we go through this life. That needs to be our spiritual GPS. We are headed to a holy city, the dwelling place of God. So here's another element of living with eternity in mind. First of all, the the orientation is we're headed, we're from God and we're going to God, to the holy city. But as we go through this journey, there's suffering and there's difficulty. But in the midst of it, we have hope because of the glory that's to come. We have hope. And that's what the Apostle Paul is writing about in Romans 8. If you want to turn there and look at that passage. We have hope in the midst of suffering because of the glory that's going to come in the future. He says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, yes, we suffer in this present life. But Paul's saying, take a scale, take an eternal scale. And the sufferings of, of this life are, 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 are nothing far outweighed compared to the glory of the presence of God that's to come. In fact, you can just throw away the scale. You can't even really compare the two. The glory that is to come is immeasurable. He talks about creation itself is in the process of somehow suffering or groaning, longing to be liberated. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? The created world itself is not how God intended it to be. You know, what we see, the disease and the corruption in the created order. It's not the way that God intended it to be. Even creation itself wants to be liberated, is longing for redemption, is longing to be made whole the way that God intended it to be. And we enter into that suffering. We enter into that groaning. He says that we groan too. And he talks about this groaning, inward groaning, this eternal groaning. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have this first fruit of the Spirit. That's part of what gives us hope is the first fruit of the spirit. The first fruit means that there's more fruit to follow. There's a harvest that's to come. We have the presence of the spirit now that stirs us, uh, stirs up hope in us because we have this first fruit or other times he calls it a foretaste of the glory to come like a little appetizer. You know, you're at a dinner party and you get some good appetizers and you know that the main course is going to be really good. The spirit is a little appetizer when we experience the presence of the spirit. 
It's a little appetizer of the glory that's to come. And in this first fruit of a harvest, that's going to be glorious. But in the meantime, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly, he says, for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. We long for the redemption of our bodies. So there's this groaning that happens. There's this groaning inwardly in prayer. And you know, folks, there's this groaning outwardly <laughs> as we wait for the redemption of our bodies, as our bodies get older and fail us. I was reading an article. A grandpa was writing this article, a grandpa named Randy, and he's talking about his three-year-old grandson. And, of course, at that age, three-year-olds are, are tape recorders, aren't they? Um, my little Sam's about to turn two, and he's, he's getting close to that stage where everything gets repeated and parroted back to you. And so Grandpa Randy is watching his three-year-old grandson, and, uh, and, the, and the little grandson is starting to groan, and he's starting to, to make these, these old folk noises, grunting and groaning. And Grandma and Grandpa look at one another and say, what's going on here? And finally they realize, this is what we sound like. We're making those noises. He's mimicking us. Well, groaning is part of getting older, isn't it? <laughs> and getting older, part of getting older is realizing that although this, this life is filled with sweet, beautiful things, that's just a reflection of the beauty and goodness of God that's to come. And uh, in the midst of suffering, that's our hope. There's a Christian ethicist named Gilbert Melander who writes about end-of-life issues. And he says, you know, if we never experience, experience aging, if we never experience the lessening of our powers, would, be, would we be willing to accept the truth that more of this life is not really what we seek? More of this life is not really what we need? Our culture is obsessed with just extending this life now. But the aging process tells us it's running down. It can't last forever. And that should stir up in our hearts a longing for something more, for someone more. That is God. And that's what Paul's writing about here. The glory that is to come. The glory that is to come and the hope that is stirred up by this glory to come uh, sustains us in the midst of our groaning. In this hope, he says, we are saved. I came across a story of a hospital chaplain who was talking to a patient and he said this patient had a dream, maybe a Jacob-like kind of experience. But the patient had a dream of going to heaven. And in this dream, he saw the great book with all the answers. And the chaplain said, well, could you tell me some of these answers? And he said, he said, actually, when you know that the answers are there, you don't have to have all the answers here. It's enough to know the answers are there. It's enough to know that God is there. Capital A answer. And when we get to heaven, I think a lot of the questions will sort of fade away in the glorious presence of God. We can live with questions about suffering because we know the answer is there. We have this eternal hope. So we're orientated towards God who makes his dwelling place with us. We go through this life in the midst of, of suffering with hope. But the other point of the eternal perspective that I want to talk about comes from our gospel reading. And we'll let Jesus have, have the last word. And his teaching, and this is a sobering reality about 
the end of time and about eternal matters. It's what Jesus teaches us here about the final judgment, that there is a day where all history is going to wrap up and we will all stand before the judgment seat. There's a day of judgment coming. And that's the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, as our version calls it, Matthew 13. And Jesus gives a very simple explanation. I like it when Jesus interprets the parables for us very clearly. So we don't have to guess, but he says that the wheat represents the people who are in the kingdom of God. These are the people who've responded to the seed of the word that Jesus is preaching and teaching. And the weeds represent the sons of evil. These are people who are living in rebellion against God. And they've rejected Christ and his word. And the harvest, Jesus says, is the end of the age. And so what Jesus is teaching here is a is a hard truth. But it's something he says over and over again in his teaching. He's warning us that there is a day coming, a day of great separation. A day of, of judgment. And in fact, that separation and that judgment began in Jesus's day as well. You see different people responding to Jesus differently. So the separations already happened. In fact, at the end of this chapter in Matthew 13, there's a story about Jesus being rejected even in his hometown. Some people received Christ and became disciples. Other people rejected him. And some people even claimed that he had a demon. And, and so this separation happens whenever the word of the gospel goes forth. And it'll happen to the end of the age until there's a final day of separation. And Jesus teaches here that that leads to the judgment can lead to awful eternal consequences for those who've rejected him. The son of man, listen to these these sobering words. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think there's a lot that we could say about that teaching, about Jesus's use of imagery when it comes to to this uh, teaching on hell. Lots of images, lots of symbols. Fiery furnace is an image of pain and suffering. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, an image of grief and regret and anger. So I think Jesus is using imagery and symbolism. But when we say that, that doesn't mean that it's just Oh, it's just symbolism and imagery. Therefore, we don't have to be concerned too much about the eternal judgment or the day of judgment. No, he's using these terrible symbols to convey a terrible reality of being separated from God. God, who is the ultimate source of life and love and anything good. So so that's what he's trying to get across to us here. And we have to take it seriously. Um, if we take Christ seriously, we don't really like to think about these things. I don't really like to dwell on this topic. I'd rather preach the mercy and love and goodness of God. And that's kind of the, the, the message that I want to preach time and time again, because I, I, I think love motivates better than fear. But then there is this other side of Jesus's teaching, and we have to take that seriously if we take Jesus's teaching Seriously. C.S. Lewis said that sin is a human being saying to God, go away and leave me alone. And hell is God's answer. You have your wish. In other words, you know, we talk about God 
sending people to hell. But C.S. Lewis is trying to convey the idea that, you know, over time, we're developing a character, either closer to God or away from God. And so God ultimately lets lets people who reject him time and time again have their wish. And Jesus says the other side of this is that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the heaven, in the kingdom of the father. He who has ears, let him hear. And so what this means for us, brothers and sisters, is, first of all, checking ourselves and our relationship with God. Are we taking Christ seriously? Have we trusted in him? He's ultimately the gate to heaven. Now, Jacob says this is the gateway to heaven, talking about Bethel. Well, Jesus is the gateway to heaven for us. Are we sure that we've gone through that gate? Are we sure that we have peace with God? Are we right with God? And then the second thing, of course, is to think about our family and our friends and our loved ones and to pray for them that Christ would reach out to them and draw them to him. The good news is that at the cross, Jesus takes upon himself the judgment we deserve. And as we trust in him, we can be confident that the judge is our redeemer and our friend and our savior. The good news is that Jesus is our Bethel. He's the gateway to heaven for us and for all who receive him. The good news is that through Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit working in our life, the presence of the living God, the first fruits that gives us hope. The hope of glory in the midst of suffering and trials. The good news is that because of Jesus Christ, we have this hope of eternal life. Praise God for that. Amen.